Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. I am your host, Dr. Jessica Hockman. This week, I talked to my own OBGYN, Dr. Michael T. Johnson. When I was pregnant, Dr. Johnson really helped to put my mind at ease. He's a talented doctor, a wonderful listener, a rational thinker, and honestly, one of my favorite human beings on the planet. In this episode, Dr. Johnson and I discuss some of the most common questions that come up during pregnancy. For example, how important is it to avoid eating sushi? Is it safe to go in the jacuzzi? And what about enjoying a cup of coffee? We discuss all of this and more. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. And if you know anyone who may benefit from listening, please share it. Without further ado, Dr. Johnson. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. I'm so excited to introduce Michael T. Johnson, an OBGYN. He's an associate clinical professor at UCLA. How are you, Dr. Johnson? I'm very good. Thank you. Happy to be here. So Dr. Johnson is a very uh, well-known, highly respected OBGYN at UCLA. And if it's okay with you, I just thought I'd share uh, briefly the story about how I heard about you, how I met you. Sure. <laughs> I don't know, actually, I actually don't even know if I've ever told you this story. But when I was in residency, so in residency, you know, we're there 80 hours a week, and I was pregnant in my second year of residency. And I figured I needed to find an OBGYN at UCLA, and I figured no better way to find who to choose as my OBGYN by, than by asking the OB residents because they know you, you know, they know all the staff and they see you in the operating room, they see how you are with patients and they learn from you. So I asked uh, three OBGYN residents and three for three said to me, you have to see Michael T. Johnson. I remember they used your middle initial. <laughs> and so I thought, there we go. That has to, that, that's, that's my guy. So I couldn't be happier. Um, I had all three of my children with you who are now uh, almost six, eight, and 11. So I've known you quite a while and I'm so thrilled to have you here. So thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, okay. So what I, you know, the premise of this podcast is really to provide information to listeners and hopefully help uh, lessen anxiety over certain topics. Um, so when I was pregnant, you were so helpful to me. I had a lot of common concerns and worries and you really made me feel better um, so I thought I would ask you some of those questions that I had on my mind when I was pregnant. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So starting, um, what do you think about eating sushi? That's something that comes up a lot. And I remember you had a great answer for me when I was pregnant. Uh, what, what is it that when a mom says to you, is it okay if I eat sushi when I'm pregnant or raw fish? What, what thoughts do you have about that? I, I think, I think one of the sad things that happens with, with a, um, all of the warnings that you get on the internet and from friends and family and that is that if you notice most of the precautions are really actually about some very healthy things like exercise and you know uh, lean lean meats light cheeses and and sushi to me there's probably no better single nutritional source of a lean protein and omega-3 you know fatty acids than sushi or sashimi um so i've never quite understood this sort of blanket prohibition against uh, sushi and sashimi you've got you know they you even have prenatal vitamins now that are they're putting supplements of dha and epa which are these omega-3s that as you know are linked to cognitive or, or fetal brain development newborn brain development so you know, there are a couple of things to know. There's caveats to almost all these things. And one of them is that um, the large, long-lived predator fish, like I think it's sharks, swordfish, uh, 
big eye tuna, not all tuna, big eye tuna and a couple of other tile fish and et cetera, they, they live long enough and feed on other little fish that there's some concern they could consume enough mercury in their lifetime. And then if you ate too much of them, uh, a pregnant woman could have mercury exposure. I think that's pretty unlikely, but most obstetricians will follow the guideline of maybe three servings a week of, uh, of, of t- tuna and, and those, those species of fish. Other than that, I really don't see the concern. We're lucky enough to live in Southern California where we get very high-grade sashimi and sushi. So, you know, there's places I probably wouldn't go and eat sushi when I'm pregnant. But for the most part, I think it, I think it's wonderful nutrition. And honestly, not many people can eat sushi more than three days a week. I wish I could. but um, So I don't see any – I put almost no limits at all on sushi consumption. I think it's awesome. That's really helpful. I, I remember actually – when I was newly pregnant, my husband and I took a trip to Peru, and you said to me, just make sure to be careful eating the, the street food. Just make sure it's from a reputable place. Yeah, I, and I, that holds for a, a lot of, you know, the the restriction also on, like, deli meats and, and the concern about listeria. I tell patients I wouldn't walk into a deli with a D on the window and, and, and get it. But <laughs> at reputable places that know how to handle these things properly, I think you can feel safe, yeah. That's really great to know. So so you would – so even eating deli meats uh, – you think is okay to do? Yeah. So the, the, what, what doctors are talking about with a lot of these restrictions is primarily listeria. Listeria is the, probably the one organism that comes to mind that if a pregnant woman gets it, she may be particularly susceptible to getting very sick and it harming or causing great harm to the baby. Fortunately, listeria is very rare. Um, and I think we live, we, we talk about in all these, these, these precautions and all are based on something that happens at an exceedingly low rate. And the only time that we've seen it happen repetitively, the only food product that I know of where it has, we've had repeated outbreaks is a particular soft cheese that's unpasteurized, uh, manufactured in Mexico. So all the other listeria sources to me tend to be random. They may be peaches. They may be lettuce from Idaho. They may be, you know, they, and it's almost like getting struck by lightning on a sunny day. I just can't worry about those things. So the, the main prohibition would be against unpasteurized soft cheeses. Now, my understanding is you can't legally get unpasteurized cheeses in the, in the, in the U.S., although some patients say sometimes at some restaurants they're offered it. I don't know. But there's nothing that says feta or any of these soft cheeses, these light cheeses. In fact, I think they're healthier for you. And yet some women avoid them by putting them in that, that category. And that's not what they're talking about. So we do want all juices like vegetable and fruit juices to be pasteurized and, and all dairy products to be pasteurized. And that's about all I say as far as a limit. And then with regards to deli meats, keep in mind, you know, the delis, they, they buy the, the turkey, they slice it, and then, and then it's sitting in a counter. And so there is some potential of a contamination in the handling. The stuff you get in the grocery has been, you know, basically sealed, almost sterile by people in like hazmat suits in a factory. It's really safe. And so if it comes to your house and you're handling it and you're eating it there, I don't think you have to heat it up before, okay. say, eating sliced turkey. But it doesn't hurt to heat it up because that does kill listeria. But again, those these are good things nutritionally, you know, lean protein sources. I hate to see women avoid those uh, because of something that is extremely rare and, and very unpredictable. Have you ever seen a baby get listeria? I think I've seen one case in 30 you know, so thirty 
almost 30 years of obstetrics and I don't know, eight or 9,000 births. And I think I've seen one patient with listeria and the baby was fine and she did okay. Yeah. It's wow. quite rare. Yeah. Eight or 9,000 births. <laughs> that's a guess. I don't, keep that's a, a, <laughs> I don't keep a list, but it, that's the best guess I've come up when patients ask. Yeah. So, so are there any foods worth avoiding? Um, I mean, I, would you, what comes, is there anything that's come to mind that you've seen a woman eat that has caused a bad outcome or, or that we should avoid? No, that I've never seen. I've never seen someone eat something and something bad happened. So, um, I would, yeah, the only thing I tell patients is, is unpasteurized dairy products. Stay away from those. You know, there's okay. talk about, you know, how cooked, for example, eggs can be. Can you have an egg that's, you know, sunny side up? And what they're talking about there is mainly things that you don't want, whether you're pregnant or not, like shigella, salmonella, but those are no more dangerous in a pregnant woman than they are in a non-pregnant woman and no, no particular risk to, a, in fact, no risk really to a fetus. The general rule in, 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 in obstetrics is if the mom is well, the baby's well, moms have to get extraordinarily sick before anything could happen to their baby. And I think if someone wants to understand pregnancy philosophically, the whole design is about that. The baby comes first, sorry moms, but the babies steal everything. They'll take it from mom. It's oxygen, it's calcium, you name it. So most of our nutritional advice is actually to keep the mom repleted. Mm. The baby will steal everything you have and will get everything you have and will always be protected before the mom. So if you keep the mom even halfway healthy, the baby's gonna be fine. I know that sounds odd. There's this notion that you gotta do everything perfect. And the truth is the design is such that you don't have to do everything perfect because nature doesn't trust you. <laughs> but that's good news because it will, it will, take, care of, it will take care of the baby. It really does. So no, I don't, I don't have much in the way of, of, but these are, you know, food things that I say don't do, but these questions come up every day. And I just see patients missing out on good things because of what they've been told. And I think that, you know, if, if they were, if they were warnings against French fries or fat burgers or something, I mean, I might say, oh, fine. But these are, these are healthy things that are good for you during pregnancy. Yeah. What about, so, so when you say the baby steals all the nutrients from the mother at the mother's expense, is that the re rationale for recommending prenatal vitamins? Do you think prenatals are, are that necessary? What are your thoughts? I know yeah, folic acid comes be, up in the first trimester. Some of these things may sound rogue, but I think prenatal vitamins are a pretty good, you know, not a scam, but so here's what happens in the normal healthy diet of a... <laughs> This is why you're the well, best. First, first of all, I have to tell you, I'm not a big supplement person. And I tell my patients, yes. you know, try to get your nutrients through food. That's how we are made to absorb them. I'd rather you get vitamin D from a dairy source or calcium from a dairy source than I would, you know, take a supplement because it's not clear how well we absorb all these supplements. In the prenatal vitamin, there is there are a couple semi-essential things. One is folate. A minimum intake of about 0.4 milligrams of folate is needed to help reduce the risk of spina bifida in, in newborns. Now, that occurs only at a very particular time in embryonic development, around five, six weeks or five weeks when the, the neural tube closes. It turns out a lot, if you look at labels, much of the food we eat is, is supplemented with folate. So flour, pasta, rice, it's almost like you'd, you'd have to have an extraordinarily odd diet not to get enough folate. So you think of a prenatal vitamin that you start, say, preconceptually as sort of insurance. 
in case you're somehow that that one person that's not getting enough folate in your diet. Um, but most women will, even without the vitamin, they'll have enough folate. And then if you look at what's in prenatal vitamins, the basic ones are pretty basic. They're actually less than you would compared to say a one a day. And that's because the one thing we want to avoid the most is too much of anything. So there, you know, the things that women who are pregnant need above baseline are calcium, iron to expand their blood volume, folate in the first trimester, and then their, their metabolic nutrient needs are about the same as non-pregnant women. So there's nothing wrong with taking a prenatal vitamin, except they all seem to be like giant and pink and cause nausea. I don't know why, but they, you know, but there's, but so I don't tell patients not to take it. You can only absorb a certain amount of iron a day. So I see patients taking too much iron and you don't want to do that in pregnancy because women are naturally prone to gastrointestinal disruption, including constipation and iron will only make it worse because the iron you don't absorb, it goes down and messes with your colon. So I usually tell patients don't do more than just the iron and the prenatal vitamin unless they're anemic. So what about the common questions about uh, like caffeine, alcohol, like a glass of wine in the third trimester? Do you think that's okay? Or I, I know it's hard to permit any kind of alcohol, but yeah, well, yeah. So there's different viewpoints on that. I mean, the, the one that's put out for <clears throat> common consumption is this idea that, you know, no alcohol because we can't prove that uh, any amount is safe. That's a little bit misleading because we actually know, what we actually know from the science is that the only alcohol that can cause problems seems to be one of two things, either huge intake daily, like you would see in a, in a patient that was, you know, floridly alcoholic, or heavy binges lasting several days at a time in heavy binge act. And the reason for that is to the degree that alcohol can affect a fetus, it's a neurotoxin. Um, but it's only causes problems if it's there at very high levels for long periods of time, because the way the fetal brain develops, <clears throat> it's very, very slow. And it's what we call plastic. It can, it changes if there's, you know, if it needs to and that. So the truth of the matter, anyone who tells you they have any data that says that alcohol is a problem in amounts less than that, that's just, it isn't true. Now, they are, it is a true statement to say they can't define what level is normal, but honestly, a, you know, a glass of wine, a glass of champagne because you go to a wedding, you know, or, or it, it's, it's really not going to harm your fetus. I'm sorry. It, it, we know we have, or I should put it this way, we have no data to suggest that. But we live in the good old US of A where they, they're not talking to you. They're talking to the person that says, oh, I can have a glass of wine. Well, maybe two is fine. Maybe a bottle is right. fine. You know what I mean? And so it's a trust. We have, this, we have this messaging problem. We even have it now with COVID where we're, they're talking to people to manipulate behavior as opposed to the truth in, in some sense. And so nobody wants to say, yeah, you could have a, a glass of wine. In case one leads to two bottles or... or Right. I mean, they used to use alcohol to treat preterm labor and it was miserable. Women were not happy, but it, I mean, they'd be on alcohol for uh, IV alcohol for weeks and there was never any concern about the baby. So don't miss what I'm saying. It's, no, I, you know, talk to, you know, it's that, it's that, that disclaimer, talk to your doctor. And I always tell patients, if I tell you something's okay, but it makes you uncomfortable, well, of course don't do it. But it is true. A little bit of alcohol in pregnancy is not, has never been shown to cause any harm. I, I definitely felt like that. I, I knew that the, like, as you're saying, a glass of wine probably wouldn't be, you know, 
would not be harmful to the fetus, but I still psychologically had trouble having any bit of it just because of what yeah, I and I think, and that's that's why I tell patients. But if you're not giving comfort, I mean, I I can't, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and the generation before me, if a patient called and had some contractions, they literally would say, "Have a glass of wine; that'll make the contractions go away," because it can. Wow. And you know, some of us turned out okay. <laughs> that's true. And what about um, having a glass of coffee? Have you seen any harm to yeah. to moms or to baby from having a little bit of coffee? No, you know, if you look back, and and that's the one thing. Patients should know. You know this just because you do this. You, it, we are used to looking at the literature all the time. Right. And I always tell patients, one study never makes me do anything. I've got to see it reproduced. I've got to see it done well. And so you can always go somewhere and find something about just about every exposure that can cause harm. What I would say is the overwhelming uh, amount of data points to that caffeine and small to so-called moderate amounts, a couple hundred milligrams a day, is entirely safe in pregnancy. Uh, you can find studies where they take, you know, rats and they give them enough caffeine, like way above, and their little baby pups don't run through the maze as well. But they, they use extraordinary high doses. In human studies, generally, um, most studies suggest no harm. Now, there was a recent and this is what scares people. There was a recent review, I think a meta-analysis in 2020 that claimed that even small amounts could cause um, bad outcomes. But one of the common biases in those studies is that unfortunately when women have bad outcomes, they are, they're more likely to recall everything they did. And I think that's why we have to be real careful with those retrospective studies and someone who say miscarries or has a bad event. I'm confident that the preponderance of uh, data shows that small amounts of caffeine, you know, like a cup a day is, is, is not problematic. Yeah. What I think is interesting in the, in the NICU and then I see you caffeine's actually used as a treatment um, right. for babies that have trouble breathing. We'll often yeah. give a little bit of caffeine. So it's a, yeah, caffeine's one of those odd little things that they've been trying to pin something on it in, in for you know decades, and never has seen you know oddly enough it, in the end. I mean, there's some people that need to avoid caffeine, but in general, it seems like it might cause harm, and it, but it doesn't. Okay, so so the take home point here is uh, in terms of feeding and consumption, just to be everything in moderation, to be smart about it. I think that's fair. Okay. Yeah. See, the, uh, system, the system is designed, like I mentioned at the beginning, it is designed to protect the baby. Um, so a lot of things don't cross the placenta. The ones that do, you know, are handled in a way where it, it, there is no harm to baby. Yeah. What about things like Tylenol, Advil, cough and cold medications, antibiotics? Have you ever seen, you know, broadly speaking, any, any, anything mom should think about in terms of taking medications? Yeah. So... You know, it was for years, it was real common for doctors to say, take Tylenol, it's safe. It doesn't work for much. I mean, it works for fever, a little tiny bit as an analgesic. There have been some studies, and we don't know quite what to make of them from the Netherlands and in Europe, saying women that have high consumption of Tylenol throughout pregnancy, there is some higher incidence of like neurobehavioral things like ADD, I think, things like that. Now, what puzzles me about that is I don't have anybody that's taking Tylenol at anywhere close to the level that those studies reported. My patients, if they take a Tylenol, it's because their back hurts and they take one single dose 
here. And then, you know, two weeks later, they take one. Those studies mostly were, they said they were heavy daily Tylenol. And, and so back to your point, in moderation and for occasional aches and pains or mild fever, Tylenol is going to be okay. Advil's a little bit trickier, but it's, it's actually, I would argue, safer than Tylenol. But there's certain caveats that you have to tell patients. And that is that after about 30 weeks of pregnancy, you can't take Advil in high doses around the clock, day in and day out, because a small percentage of patients that do that will have decreased amniotic fluid or a change in, a, in the ductus arteriosus in the heart. Now, we have patients who are on that and have to, patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and we just monitor those things. But temp, small do, doses of Advil here and there have never been shown to cause any harm in pregnancy. And they're more effective for some of the, the aches and pains, the sacroiliac pain, you know, the sciatica than, than, than Tylenol. Again, back to what you said, always in moderation. Here and there, and it will be safe. It's so great to know. Thank you. Um, now, what about like activities that moms do? Have you ever seen uh, exercise, for example, comes up? I know a lot of moms, they monitor their heart rate or they, they don't want to exercise because they're fearful that it'll harm the baby. And I know that exercise is also helpful, you know, keeps you, it helps you recover faster. It's good for you. Do you have any limits in terms of um, harm to the baby or harm to the mother with, with concerns relating to exercise? The short answer is no. And that's based on both experience and data. The There was a really good study do, done, I don't know, maybe five or eight years ago. And they actually took three groups of women. They took health, they, they took uh, trained athletes who, who tr trained at a high level before pregnancy, then moderately active uh, pregnant women, and then couch potatoes, basically. Favorite people that did because our concern, we did have some concern that if somebody, you know, wakes up and they're like pregnant, I'm going to start an exercise. Right? We're like, well, wait, I don't know, would that steal blood flow from the baby? Well, it turns out it doesn't. So they took all three of these groups and they did really uh, sophisticated monitoring of the blood flow to the baby and the baby's heart rate before, during and after exercise. And they could find no level at which exercise at the mom whether it was the inactive woman who was pushing herself too far or the trained athlete going max uh, that could harm the baby. That prior recommendation, something about keeping the heart rate under, I don't know, 160 for less than 40 minutes, I believe was made up. They didn't find a threshold. They just figured, well, that's. And in fact, a couple of years ago, a woman ran the 800 meters at eight months pregnancy in the, I guess it was the U.S. Olympic trials. Wow. Which was awesome because she showed, yeah, you can do that. And the baby was fine. She didn't do that well because she was slowed down by the baby, but it was really great. And my runners, for example, in pregnancy, most of them, what they'll do is they'll run until it gets too uncomfortable. And, and yes. it usually does at some point. And I think then your body tells you, yeah, I'll move on to a, a different exercise. Um, Bikram yoga, yoga, we kind of say stay away. Too hot, probably better to not do it in the heat. You know? Okay. In terms of heat, what about jacuzzis? Do you, do you find <clears> that women have... Is there any harm to the fetus to being in a jacuzzi that's too hot? Or is there a temperature that we should think about? Generally, no. It would take an extreme event for that to cause harm. So the okay. two, the two, the two potential. See, in all of these myths, there's like a kernel of truth that's sort right. of true, right? <laughs> right? And then it's broadened out to be this: stay away from the jacuzzi. 
So in the first trimester, there would be concern. Could a woman raise her body temperature high enough, her core body, that it could cause a malformation in the baby? Because that's been described in animal models. It's never been seen in humans because you'd have to get your core temperature too high. The second thing is you progress in pregnancy. All pregnant women know this. That if it is incredible, you're basically a human radiator because you're radiating not only your own body's heat, but the baby's energy. And they have very high metabolic. So your tolerance, the, your ability to keep your core temperature down is a little limited in pregnancy. So I tell women if they do do, do a koozie, try to leave at least, you know, their maybe chest to head up so that they're, so they're able to cool and then maybe, you know, do it in maybe 10 to 20 minute shifts, then get out and cool off. If you do that, I'm confident you could never raise your core temperature to problematic. So the thing you would want to avoid is like, you know, sitting in the water like this for an hour. Maybe, maybe that could hurt, but, but generally, you know, the other thing I tell patients is most things are common sense. I tell patients, if someone walks up to you and says, you're pregnant, you can't do that. Almost definitely they're wrong and you're not because it's, it's pretty intuitive and it has, it should be pretty intuitive, right? Yes. Like I said, nature doesn't, doesn't trust us. It's gonna, it's gonna protect a baby in a matter what you do. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you just go bungee jumping or, you know, play with nuclear waste, but there, there are limits, you know, but, but no, the point, you know, most stuff that an ordinary person says, yeah, this should be okay. Right. So is okay. You made me feel so good when I was pregnant with my son. I I was seven months pregnant and I got into a car accident. I was rear-ended and I was so nervous that something would happen to him. And I remember you, you said something about you know, when women are in trauma or they fall down the stairs, it's a myth that they will miscarry. Um, yeah. Do you remember saying that? or what? Can you elaborate well, it, on that? It, it most definitely is with miscarriage. Now, can you go somewhere and find some report that someone had trauma to the abdomen and then lost the baby? Yes, yes. does exist. But I can tell you in 30 years of being on labor and delivery a whole lot of the time and for we still do, but for decades, we're even more careful. Any patient that had any trauma at all, we'd bring them into the hospital, monitor them for 24 hours, and then, and if everything was fine, they'd go home. And in these whole, in, in these 30 years, I've never seen one of those patients have, have a problem. Wow. The design, the design of the pregnant uterus is something just hard to imagine. Um, if this next thing is too graphic, you can edit it out. But I had a patient that was literally run over by a pickup truck twice. Um, Twice? Yeah, her husband was the driver, which was more problematic. But it, in, in, at any rate, they brought her to the hospital. Wow. She literally had track marks right across the abdomen. She was 32 weeks. They asked us to deliver the baby, not because there was any problem with the baby. The baby looked great on the tracing, but they needed to repair some things. I won't get too graphic. So we delivered the baby. The baby was perfect. Oh, my goodness. So if And that's not to say go play under trucks, but it, it is to say, like, it made me that day, I was like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe the that design that it's that protective. And that's what we see in labor and delivery. The only time a baby is harmed is if a mom is in trauma that is so life-threatening, it's basically hurting her so badly the baby has to be delivered. It's almost never the baby. Now, the, the concern is that someone could have trauma and have placental abruption. Yes. And that's why when patients do have any significant trauma to the abdominal period, we have them come in and we monitor, uh, but they're, they're almost virtually always, in my experience, going to be fine. Okay. So, so the common question I get is a toddler will really kick hard a mom's pregnant belly. Have you ever seen a problem from never, that? Never, 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 ever. Okay. 
happen. No, I don't know. <laughs> Could it have happened somewhere on the planet? No, no. I think pregnancy was designed with siblings in mind. I think, and you just there's not a chance in the world that a, that a, that something you know you're carrying your baby kicks or a baby jumps on you because goodness knows baby kids do that. And and I've never seen again in all these years that. I mean, as you're talking, I'm just thinking what a miracle the design of the woman in pregnancy is how how you know what a miracle to be designed in such a way to protect the baby so much i think that's the key you know i mostly i mostly operate on you know data and experience but the the philosophic underpinning to that like if if patients could understand the design is just amazing it's just there to to it's 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 just i mean i've been doing it for 30 years and i'm still just amazed by nature's brilliance in in protecting the baby it knows what things not to cross to the baby it keeps the stress hormones isolated so your stress doesn't stress baby i mean and it goes on and on it's just it it and so if you're thinking about it you're a pregnant woman just trust in nature there's good reason to do that more than your friends and the internet that's a great, a great message. Um, and what about just while, you know, this is such a, this is a topic that comes up a lot that I get. What about vaccines for mothers when they're pregnant? You know, it's recommended the, the COVID vaccine, the Tdap, the flu shot. Have you ever seen a mother have uh, a, a bad outcome or the fetus have a bad outcome as a result of getting vaccinated? No. <clears throat> so that's an easy answer. I've not great. seen an adverse reaction or, or an adverse outcome for mom or baby from getting the vaccine. The common vaccines is that are given and recommended in pregnancy are flu vaccine, which we've been giving for years and years. And the data is overwhelming that it is safe um, for mom and baby. Great. Tdap, pretty over. So Tdap is now Tdap. The thing you know about Tdap is given for the baby. You, you know this, I, just for your listeners, that it's given not for the moms, because most of them have been vaccinated before. If they haven't been vaccinated within 10 years, they should get it. But it's mainly to get antibodies to pass to the baby to protect baby until you guys vaccinate them for, 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 for pertussis. Um, and when it first came out, you know, we're, we were very cautious because we wanted lots and lots and lots of safety data because um, I think at a peak, I think the number of deaths from neonatal pertussis was somewhere in the, or whooping cough was somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of 16 out of 4 million births. So, but we have really good safety data now that they've accumulated that says Tdap in pregnancy to protect the baby, um, in the first few months is, it, it looks entirely safe. Now I'm in the camp of my patients' decisions are their decisions. My job is to help them with those decisions. So I am not in the camp that says everyone should get this or everyone should get that. I think you, you sit down and, and you say, you know, you find out where your patient's at, what their worries are, what their, you know, and you work it out and you figure out. I, I would never say everyone should get this, everyone should get that. I have patients that don't get the flu vaccine and I can live with that. It is, you can get flu during pregnancy and some patients get really, really sick, but the vast majority don't. So if I have a patient, you know, I'll talk to them individually and we'll figure out what's best for them. And then I support them in what they decide because now I know they have all the information. Um, and so that's true of flu vaccine. That's true of, of, of Tdap. Um, COVID is an evolving story, right? What I do say to patients is so far, every shred of evidence we've had uh, that has been accumulating because they have been studying pregnant women from the get-go, including in the beginning patients who were sort of given the flu vaccine when they didn't know they were pregnant and then found to be pregnant. 
And so they've been monitoring it all the way. And so far, every bit of data points to its safety in pregnancy. Um, could that change? Yes. But so far, it looks good. So all along this pandemic, I've been sitting with patients and I always tell them, you're, you know, you're juggling this risk versus this risk. Okay. You're young and you're, and you're female. So, and you don't have, and if you don't have comorbidities, your risk of a COVID related complication is very low, but the data says your risk of a COVID vaccine is also very low. One's a little bit more unknown. So depending on where we were in the pandemic, where the risk was, what their occupation is, because I have some patients that, you know, could stay at home and, and, and really isolate. So I'd work it out with each individual patient to, to, to find what worked for them. That's how I approach it. I think that sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm just thinking about how lucky I am that you're my, my doctor, and I hope everybody has a similar experience with their OBGYNs. You're very kind. It's Jessica. true. So <laughs> it, is there anything that you can think of and, you know, in all your years of being an OBGYN that has actually made a difference or, or any advice you could offer moms that actually, you know, makes a big difference in terms of outcomes to their child? Yeah. Negative stay, or positive. Stay off the internet. Don't talk to your friends. No. <laughs> you know what it is? I, well, and don't listen to podcasts except this. No, the, the, no, you know, honestly, that's a joke, but it, it's sort of like almost true yes. because everybody means well. Listen, your, your, your family, your friends, your coworkers, the internet, they, they mostly mean well, right? They're trying to help you. And we live in a society where things are better when you control everything and do everything right and all that. And pregnancy is not like that. I, I tell my, t you know, I, I tell patients like, Pregnancy is the worst for a type A person because, you know, you just, you know, you just got to trust and, and just do your thing, you know, eat healthy exercise because it gives you energy. And like you said, helps you in labor. Um, and, and, and most, but most of the stuff you see out there, it's just not really true. And I even say to patients sometimes, cause this has always bewildered me. There's a patient, I'll have a few patients will come in every time I had a friend and this happened and then, They'll do that for three or four visits. I'm like, who are your friends? I said, I've been practicing for 30 years, right? And I could tell you a lot of bad stories, but not that many, not as many as your friend is telling you. And right. I've been practicing for 30 years. So there's this tendency also to tell the bad stories, I think. Right. So, I would agree with that 100%. Which I don't get. Do you right. really want to scare, scare your friend? I think some, I guess, do. Again, I'm going to assume everybody means well because they're going to help you. But honestly, I don't, I don't get the feeling it helps. Right. The, <laughs> I think the best pregnancies are the one, and this is what I tell, live your healthy life, do your healthy thing, and that will that's a healthy pregnancy, and that's who I see doing the best. Don't overthink it. Don't overdo it. <laughs> even we, even with lactation, breastfeeding, you know, patients, we, they get really anxious about it, and that never helped anyone breastfeed, and we put so much pressure on them, and I, I wholly support breastfeeding, but not to the point of, you know, making people feel really... And it's almost like, you know, you got to do a bunch of classes. You got to have a lactation calls. And then there's a place for those. Right. But honestly, trusting in nature and working through it, because breastfeeding is, I'm sorry, it's never easy. It's, it take you know, it's a process like riding a bike and then you're okay. But everybody's frustrated initially. But I think we put too much pressure on moms. And I think people think they have to go to 17 classes and you don't. <laughs> Anyhow. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I actually think like you're saying how it can negatively affect you. I I remember being, being very stressed with my first child and I read something about how the higher your cortisol levels are, it can actually delay your milk coming in. 
And so <laughs> you're right, though. The more relaxed, well, the more you trust. I tell better. patients, don't worry that your worrying is going to harm baby because now you're in this cycle. You know, they, they've done some amazing <laughs> studies on stress and pregnancy. And yes, you can find some, but they by and large say they're... It, your stress doesn't go to baby. And that's one beauty of the design. A lot of the large molecules of the stress hormone, they don't cross to the baby. And, and nature needed that. It intended that because I tell patients, if you think of, you know, human beings had far harder times than we have now. And there'd be widespread famine and stress in that. And if that cohort of, of population was messed up via that, our species would be gone, you know. So that's why the baby always had to have the priority because no matter what was going on in the world... We had to have healthy babies. Um, you know, like this thing about sleeping on your left-hand side. I always joke that if, if, if that were true, that you could fall asleep and hurt your baby, we'd be the laughingstock of the animal kingdom because <laughs> what animal falls asleep and the baby something happens to? I mean, it, it, it's, I know, again, it comes from a small kernel of truth, which is that if you lie on your side, you get a little bit of extra blood flow. But in practical terms, it doesn't matter at all. So there's these little things. They start out as little truths. And right. then they become broader guidelines, and that's where they cause trouble. <laughs> You're so reassuring. It's just nice to hear you explain everything. I'm so appreciative. Yeah, I sometimes wonder if a patient's going to come in and try and trick me and like ask me, you know, <laughs> can you, can I, can I, go, can I go play with nuclear waste or? Something? And and the answer is no. I know when to worry. I know when to worry, and that's when I. That's and then I'll tell you, and then we'll you know we'll deal with it and that. But but. Um, you're reminding no, it's me just having done it so long, I guess, right? No, it, it definitely it's it's nice. Your experience speaks volumes, so uh, more more than the friends on the internet, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. But I, I actually one last story. I remember when I I um, with my neck with my second baby, I was driving. I had more of a distance to get to UCLA to see you, and I was worried that I would get stuck in LA traffic. And you said to me, you know, you never really hear stories about women pulling off to the side of the road and having their baby in their car, it somehow just seems to work out. And that Yeah. Like when I was first in practice, I admit for several years, I always worried about that. Oh, are they going to make it to the hospital? Are they going to make it to the hospital? Right. I stopped worrying about it because everybody makes it to the hospital. And <laughs> one of the interesting, this is kind of an interesting thing, is there's a circadian rhythm of contractions and there is a peak that tends to put women into labor between about 10 and midnight and 3 to 5 in the morning. In labor and delivery, units they call it the bus coming in because that's when the surge of, of contracting women come in and when we have patients in the hospital or in preterm labor that's when they surge and contract now that was not you know that was not for la traffic but it sure probably helps a little bit because <laughs> the a best lot driving of hours in the middle of but you will notice two things one you don't hear a lot of freeway bursts which is good but if you do, they're always fine because that means the baby just came out and the fireman gave it to him and everybody was happy for the most part. So, yeah, it was a practical thing. I just stopped worrying because I think in all those years, I may have had three people that had to divert to a closer hospital. And that's oodles of patients. And that, you know, be fourth, fifth baby and they stayed home too long. That and kind somehow of it works out for the yeah. vast majority. That's great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know you're a busy man. I appreciate your time. Anytime. And I know that anyone listening is going to feel so much the way you made me feel better when I was pregnant. I just hope it helps anybody listening out there. And I know it will. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.